Every football season for the past 50 years, there's been a weekend where the last undefeated NFL team finally loses a game. More than half the time, it happens within the first eight weeks. Usually, it's all over by mid-November. Famously, in 2007, it didn't happen until February of the following year. But always, it happens. The only team that got under the limbo stick successfully, the 1972 Miami Dolphins. This is Josh Lewin, and we're continuing our look back at the perfect season. Don Shula's Dolphins on their way to 17-0 with the so-called no-name defense, and not one but two star quarterbacks, not two but three great running backs. In this episode, we feature game two of those 17 played that season, the Orange Bowl home opener against the Houston Oilers. A reminder that this was a motivated bunch of Dolphin players. They've been pantsed by the Dallas Cowboys in Super Bowl VI just eight months prior. They lost that game by 21 points. Defensive back Tim Foley took a newspaper photograph of the final scoreboard from Tulane Stadium, had it tacked up in the den of his home as the clock read zero seconds and the score read Dallas 24, Miami 3. That was the kind of motivation that dripped from the pores of these returning players. Their coach was certainly ready to stick the landing too. Don Shula was 0-2 in Super Bowl games and never heard the end of that. For years, the Dolphins were always the least penalized team in the league. They never jumped off sides because Shula demanded such things. So you bet he was a bit of a taskmaster in training camp to set a professional and focused tone. His son David was only 13 years old that season, but he was a constant at those training camps. And here's what he remembers. <laughs> oh, they're, you know, they would... Since I was around a lot, I worked at the training camps back in those days. And, um, you know, I was literally picking up laundry, doing the laundry, handing out uh, clean, uh, you know, undergarments and uniforms and, and such. So, I, you know, I was around for a lot of that. Uh, the, and the guys would, you know, gripe uh, as as players do. And, you know, when you, you're only going to get good at, at anything you do in life is if somebody is pushing you to, to do more than you think you're capable of. And, and whenever that happens, there's some uncomfortableness that's experienced. And so, yeah, there was some there was some griping. But, uh, you know, you had a bunch of guys that that uh, really they bought in. You know, they saw the early success from the 70 and 71 season and and knew that uh they were you know very capable of of winning the super bowl and 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 bought into the program so they they put up with that and yeah there was some good nature teasing and i think they you know a couple times and you know when i would uh be a little snarky as a you know 10 11 12 13 year old uh you know i remember one time getting uh we used to use uh grocery carts uh we i don't know how we ate, we came we, they ended up in in our possession but uh, they were used for picking up the dirty laundry after and the players are supposed to throw their laundry into the carts and then we would when the carts were full we'd take it back to the laundry room and i remember uh i must have made some comment to, i don't know who it was but uh remember being pushed in thrown in the cart and then pushed uh, uh, into a wall <laughs> at full speed with that cart. Fortunately, uh, there, I, I survived, but uh, yeah, yeah, I had some, I had some fun with the players and, and then I was sworn to secrecy. Uh, so I would be able to survive the next day. Don't go home and tell your dad where, don't go and tell your dad what just happened. <laughs> All right. The statute of limitations has passed. We can now reveal who gave 13 year old David Shula unwanted rides and shopping carts and taped them to various things. It was Doug Cruzan. 
from whom we will hear later. And if you're wondering if indeed bygones are bygones, David Shula later bought a home in Cincinnati when he became head coach of the Bengals, and his realtor was Doug Crusan's wife. So the question was posed to David, who were the players back then who really looked out for him? A 13-year-old with a bowl haircut who happened to be the coach's son. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and there were a number of them. Uh, uh, Larry Zonka, Bob Kuchenberg, uh, Earl Morrill, Bob Greasy. You know, I remember Paul Warfield took the time uh, during warm-ups, they used to call uh, – they used to run starts where they would the offense would huddle, call a play, come to the line of scrimmage, and and come off the ball, and and he would let me line up next to him as a wide receiver and showed me the proper stance and how to get off the ball, and um, I did, you know, I, I I knew the technique, I didn't have the physical skills, and never did, uh, but I learned an awful lot from him, and and uh, you know I, I had tremendous respect for uh, Jake Scott. Uh, great uh, defensive player safety and a punt returner and um you know he would he helped teach me how to catch punts and and then I ended up in high school wore his number 13 and ended up being a safety and a wide receiver and a punt returner through high school and college uh where I switched over to uh as a receiver in college but I still kept my punt returning duties and that's how I made it in the NFL one year as a punt returner for the then Baltimore Colts so you know, I learned some very, very valuable lessons that uh, helped me not only in my football career, but in life uh, from those guys. And, um, you know, I've always appreciated that. Well, David Shula was 13, but the big number known to all in training camp was not 13, but 12. That was a Don Shula staple, his mandatory 12-minute run in this steamy summer heat of training camp. Dick Anderson was the reigning 12-minute king, usually finishing ahead of the pack every time, but he lost his title in 72 to a rookie from UConn named John Crisp, who would never be heard from again. The 12-minute runs, sometimes four practices a day, and since Coach saw hydration as pampering, water was not allowed on the practice field, not even on those 90-degree humid afternoons where it felt like you were stuck in a swamp. No one dared to question it. The coach cut a figure like famous war generals like Eisenhower, Patton, and MacArthur. Coach Shula had been imported from Baltimore, which was becoming a bit of a mess, what with ownership and flux up there. The Dolphins owner Joe Robbie had thought to arrange a meeting with Shula at the Washington Marriott Hotel, and the rest, as they say, is history. In time, in 33 seasons in the league, Don Shula won more games than any other NFL coach. And we mentioned the owner. And Joe Robbie was not a wealthy Miami native. Rather, he was a 48-year-old Lebanese immigrant who had grown up in South Dakota. He had a law practice in Minneapolis. He was a self-made man who had lived kind of a tough childhood. And it said Joe Robbie ran his team the way his father had run his gas station back in the upper Midwest, with an eye on every dollar. You could not buy a pencil without Joe Robbie approving it personally. His counterpart in Houston, Bud Adams, said... He's running a $2 million a year business like it's a fruit stand. But he had bluffed his way into owning this team and always stayed one step ahead of the creditors. And in 1972, he would hit a jackpot. And in week two of 72, he would play Bud Adams' team at home, the Orange Bowl. This is a battle of two teams who wore light blue, a battle of two teams fairly new to the NFL, and a battle of two teams who each claimed rights to the same basic fight song. Now, this song, 
didn't actually get rolled out until November by the Dolphins. The Oilers ran out their version of it soon after, and each franchise has laid claim to being first to market with this bad boy. The real story, in early 72, a guy named Lee Offman, a musician from Louisiana, wrote the song called Miami Dolphins Number 1. After writing it, he made 10,000 copies of it. He hired an agent to promote it. Didn't hear anything back from Miami. He just assumed his song would disappear. But once the song started getting out around the time it was heading towards 10 and then 11 and 0, fans began hearing and singing Offman's song all over South Florida. A friend called Offman in Louisiana to tell him the news. Apparently, nobody really knew that Offman was the guy that wrote the song. He then called a top 40 radio station in Miami, said, hey, I'm the songwriter. And reportedly, the program director laughed and said, yeah, right, and hung up on it. So Offman wrote another version of the song, this time for the Oilers, having slightly altered the lyrics. It became a huge hit in Houston during the Earl Campbell and Bum Phillips eras. He made more money on that Oilers version, but meantime, the original song had already become a tradition in Miami. All right, on to the field. A day at the Orange Bowl and a thrill for a rookie like native New Yorker Eddie Jenkins. You know, uh, to see all that orange, and remember, you got steam coming up from the floor like you wouldn't believe. I, I, I'd never been in something so hot in my life. I mean, it was your feet were burning like 125 degrees, and you could see the heat rising. So I'd never played in something so hot before. The fans, it seemed like even in the preseason games, it seemed like every inch counted. They were are cheering about everything that happened. It was just amazing. It was amazing being in the Orange Bowl, even preseason. Uh, see so many fans and see so many people with the expectation. I mean, it was, it was like everybody had this expectation. You know, it was great. Well, speaking of the Orange Bowl, and not to taunt the memory of Coach Shula by any stretch, but Jenkins... Sounds a little bit like Joe Namath, doesn't he? Jenkins was just happy to be there in September of 72. But on this wet and windy afternoon, this was basically a 100-yard slip and slide. Eight fumbles bounced around the synthetic turf. And, oh, that turf was always a subject with Dolphins players. Here's Vern Den Herter. Yeah, it was an interesting saga in Miami. The, the original turf that we had, um, was fine when it was dry and if it would rain and and quite often we'd get a shower come through and it would rain and that turf was really slick it, it was like ice skating and so they thought they should uh, uh, improve that so they put a whole new uh, uh, covering on and it was kind of the same type of thing but its, it's problem was exactly the opposite that uh, particular uh, field covering was was slippery when it was hot, and being that that it was hot most of the time, that 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 field was was slippery then. And so what they had to do was pre-water that uh, before the game and at halftime just to be able to get us footing and and to cool it off so that it wouldn't be so slippery. So. Um, yeah, it, it really was a uh, a great improvement when they when they went to the prescription turf, actual grass. They took the crown out of the field, and uh, our footing was was good, and it wasn't nearly as hot as those artificial turfs were. Yeah, eventually they'd get it right, but just to re-rack it, as Vern suggested, the Orange Bowl didn't truly have astroturf. In 1972, Joe Robbie had gone with a cheaper alternative 
The American Built Right Rubber Company of Massachusetts, kind of a newcomer to the artificial surface game, but they had offered a bargain price of $205,000 with another fifty dollars off if the Orange Bowl scoreboard would display the product's name. So the turf went down, and indeed the phrase polyturf synthetic grass by American Built Right went up on that scoreboard. It all sounded cutting edge at the time, but the Dolphins were basically playing football on a thin carpet laid over concrete. By that second year, it began to decompose in the subtropical weather, and it actually played better in the rain, but couldn't take the heat. So now along came Poly, well, that is to say Poly Turf 2, which got decent reviews in the preseason. But then this Houston game brought rain, and it turned out water would accumulate on top of this new turf, forming puddles, and nothing could be done. Here's Larry Zonka. I don't care for the, I never cared for the turf. I thought it uh, shortened a lot of careers, very hard on some AC joints <laughs> and uh, hip joints. Uh, you know, it was just not not a, not a very positive thing. I mean, it, it uh, started out with more traction, but sometimes it can be too much traction on a football field too. So there was a lot of negative drawbacks. I think when they finally worked it out and got it turned around a couple of years, it was a lot better, but I wasn't a Polyturf fan, no. So yeah, Polyturf 1 could take no sun, Polyturf 2 could take no rain. But for a rookie like Larry Ball, a linebacker out of the University of Louisville, this was a combination of Christmas and Camelot. He'd have played on 100 yards of jello if that's what it took to be a Dolphin. I remember the the turf was so hard and, and so hot and sticky. We had those turf cleats, and you they would just disappear off the bottom of your shoe. They would just melt and break right off. You know, they get so soft. But the crowd was waving the hankies, and you still had the uh, dolphin in the end zone. It, it was a pretty exciting time. The Dolphins at home were two touchdown favorites against struggling Houston, but Shula did not like things from a psychological perspective. This was the ultimate trap game with Minnesota looming on the road the following week, Kansas City having been the opponent the week before. He talked up quarterback Dan Pastorini and receivers Ken Burrow and Charlie Joyner like the pro bowlers they would indeed eventually become. The game itself was sloppy, with those puddles having collected on the field. Jim Kick started at running back, and after a Houston fumble deep in their own territory, he would get the call to score on his second carry of the game. The other two running backs scored in the first half as well, and it was 20 to nothing at the half. Jim Kick had been a pro bowler his first two years in the league, coming out of college at Wyoming and by way of high school in New Jersey. In 71, he had gained close to 800 yards, and he and Larry Zonka were inseparable bosom buddies, nicknaming themselves Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, a tip of the cowboy hat to the popular movie of the early 70s, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. But Jim Kick was getting a kick right to the sidelines here in 72 very often. Mercury Morris was emerging and was doing so at the expense of old Butch Cassidy. Still, offensive line guys like Doug Crusan loved what Jim Kick was all about. Uh, Jim Kick, uh, different runner. He could go in the middle and he was off tackle. Okay, when you know our system was set up uh, even odd, and that's how the plays were called. So Jim Kick was, uh, he could go up the middle and he can go off tackle. So between when you look at your, on, in a drone looking down, that's where he was. And he could catch a ball. Yes, he could. His first four years as a Dolphin, he averaged 40 receptions a year. And in this game, three catches, including one for a short range touchdown. But the guy he was battling for playing time was indeed Mercury Morris. 
And Mercury always saw Kick and himself not as an either or, but as an and also. Well, that's what it was. That was the only way it was going to work. And it was just as much a political move as far as Don was concerned as it was a move that how I came into it was adversarial uh, in my relationship with him over not playing. But then he diffused that the very next day after we got in an argument in, in the, uh, not an argument, but it was a, if I find out you said anything, you've had it. And I said, okay. So the next day, though, he calls me to his room. I'm on my way to the Pro Bowl to play in 19, uh, 1971 Pro Bowl because I was picked as, a, I won the AFC Kick Return Championship, which is an automatic bid to the Pro Bowl. So uh, Zonk was a, was a fullback and Marv Hubbard, uh, was the fullback, and then Leroy Kelly and Floyd Little were the running backs. So now, when uh, when I'm on my way to, to L.A. to play in the Pro Bowl, I see that Shula, he calls me up and says, listen, I would not want somebody playing on this team that would be satisfied with not playing, but we wanted to go with the guys that got us here. I said, coach, getting here is one thing, but winning when you get here is another if you can't get outside and I can get outside and you don't give me a shot to get outside, then you're lessening our chances to get outside. And so he goes, I go on to the Pro Bowl and I have a great game. The, the, the coach let me play from Baltimore. Tom Landry, after the game, he goes, hey, I'm glad this kid didn't play. Okay. Hey, he made, made a difference. So now, now they're making Chula look wrong in his choice. So that summer he calls me in and he says, all right, I'm going to give you a shot to play this year. I'm going to see if you can compete for the job with Jim. All right. I said, that's all I want. So now I end up getting that, that starting job, but he made it up like it, was, like it was his invention called situation substitution. Well, if it's run pass, then I have Merck in the game. And if it's pass run, I have Jim in the game. Well, I'm a five-yard, six-yard average player on, on, on average. So I'm going to make it run pass on second down and as well as first down if I don't score. So uh, uh, that part of it kind of took Jim's time away because once we came off the field, then we're back in for another series. But if it was a third down in something where it was was a pass run, then he's all right, you're in for Merck. And then, then the same way. But he did it. Once I, uh, in 1973, I broke the record for uh, the amount of yards in a game. I was like 15 carries against New England, 197 yards. Uh, and um, <laughs> the next week, I fully expected to be starting in, in, in New York. And so when we go, and he goes, uh, all right, listen, I'm starting gym today because his people are in the stands. Now, I would, you know, in Pittsburgh, I started you when your people were in the stands. And I, I go, yeah, hey, no problem. But that's when I knew that day that there was no beating Jim kick out. And, and so I settled in with the idea that he and I were going to be sharing spots. Because if I gain more yards than anybody in the world, and he tells me, hey, Jim's people were in the stands, then we're trying to balance this thing out. And, and I, that's why I appreciated from him. Because he did give me a shot to play. And, and Jim's time did go down but the minute we had the game locked up like in Super Bowl 8 
I hardly played after the uh, in the fourth quarter because Jim he would let Jim play. Right. All right. So, so and that was fine with me. I asked Mercury Morris for one minute about that running back group, and you get well four minutes. So y- you had Kick and you had Morris to compliment Zonka. A guy like the offensive lineman Doug Cruzan was caught in the middle. He, he loved them both. He loved Jim Kick, but he also adored his fellow Pennsylvanian, Mr. Morris, as well. Well, he's he's my he and I are both from Pittsburgh, Josh. So our nickname for each other is Homeboy. <laughs> We're both from Pittsburgh, and uh, that's kind of the link. How's that? Because we both grew grew up probably, you know, twenty miles apart, maybe. To tell people, because they won't know, what, what, what a yinzer means. Yinzer? What's yinz doing? <laughs> well, that in Pittsburgh, remember, we, you always end up, end a sentence going up. I just did it to you. You go up. It, it, it's hard and people go. I thought that was the end of sense, not the beginning. I said, no, 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 we'll get there. Now Morris got there all right. He rushed for 1,000 yards that year, and the other star running back could see the value of both those guys on and off the field. Here's the headliner himself, Larry Zonka. You got Jim Kick, uh, pool shooter, you know, <laughs> laid back easy. You got uh, Mercury Morris, uh, very accelerated you know fast talking and wanting to do things but the two of them were well they had great deal of respect for each other you know i never had a situation where i had mercury talking bad about jim or jim talking bad about mercury uh, about mercury to me because i don't know maybe they just honored that they knew i was in the middle of that but i cared about both of them and i cared you know i do as blocked as hard for one as i did for the other and I don't think there was ever any personal animosity between the two of them. They liked each other. When the three of us were somewhere, it was it, we had a good time. Jim wasn't really into what Mercury liked, and Mercury wasn't much into pool shooting. But you know, and I, there I am. I'm an outdoor guy. I like to hunt fish, and neither one of them are into that. But the three of us had a common bond, and that was Shula and winning. And Shula said. I'm not doing this to favor Merck or favor Jim. I understand that you both want to be in the game full time. I understand your animosity towards that of being pulled out of the game. But you've got to understand that the, 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 the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. You know, we've got to have interchangeable parts in order to achieve what we want to do with an with a undefeated season. So by halftime in this Houston game, it had been Kick who had done a little more than Morris. And in the second half, Mercury fumbled at his own 25, and the Oilers would actually get within a couple touchdowns. But then Bob Greasy led a classic Dolphin drive. 14 plays, 93 yards, taking eight minutes off the fourth quarter clock. 34-13 would be the final, and the Dolphins were 2-0. Coach Shula had been right about Charlie Joyner. At one point, he split the star safeties, Anderson and Scott, for an 82-yard catch-and-run touchdown. Dolphin fans would see Joyner again nine years later in the fabled playoff game with San Diego when he went for 108 yards. Kellen Winslow went for 166, and the Dolphins lost that epic in overtime. In this game, backup quarterback Earl Morrill got a little work in at the end just to stay sharp. Reserve running backs Charlie Lee and Hubert Ginn ended up doing most of the running down the stretch. And by the end of the game, the team had gone for 274 yards on that slip and slide. Bob Greasy had thrown for only 111 yards through the air, about the same as he'd gone for in the Week 1 win against Kansas City. His opponent, young Dan Pastorini, had those 82 yards just on that one ball to Joyner. 
And what a contrast in the quarterbacks in this one. Greasy, cerebral, thoughtful, probably never got a parking ticket in his life, probably never had a flake of dandruff. Pastorini, a long-haired, wild horse who posed in Playgirl magazine, married a British playboy bunny who was nine years his senior. He raced motocross bikes and he judged wet t-shirt contests. Greasy preferred Reader's Digest. Pastorini had thrown for more yards in this game and sure enough had done something more noticeable, but the winning quarterback was indeed Greasy with one touchdown pass, one interception, one sack, one run from scrimmage. The old Vin Scully line probably applies. He won, then he went out and painted the town beige. Years later, Pastorini wrote his autobiography and called it Life in the Fast Lane. For Greasy, as they say, the fast lane is for passing only. Here again is Doug Cruzan. Bob, I played against him, you know, having gone to Indiana, he went to Purdue. So uh, played against him in college. And uh, although I was an offensive tackle, those first two years at IU and uh, watching him. In fact, there was uh, a game. It was my last game my junior year. And I always would tell Grace's story. I said, yeah, you and Spurrier were going for the Heisman Trophy. And the only thing the Grease didn't do when they played us, I don't know if he pumped up the footballs or not, or lined the field. He kicked extra points. He did this. He did that. And uh, they beat us like 55-6 or something. It's terrible. But anyway, he was uh, – uh, then Then I go to Miami, and there he is. Uh, no, just a uh, very heady uh, individual. Uh, his, uh, his command of the huddle, uh, distinct, listen to him, a leader. We will have much more to say in future episodes about the quiet and studious leader, Mr. Greasy. But as for this game, total yardage ended up 435 to 167 in favor of the Dolphins. First downs were 30 to 7. The offensive line had been tremendous and was now calling itself the Expendables because they were mostly castoffs from other teams and they were long shots. Cruzan was the only lineman who had ever been a first-round draft choice, and with Cruzan currently injured, his replacement, Wayne Moore, was one of those undrafted guys. Bob Kuchenberg, the left guard, had come from semi-pro ball, had been cut and reclaimed and put on the taxi squad and somehow became a starter. Jim Langer had only become a center during training camp. Somehow, it all clicked together just fine. And the defensive line was killing it. No Oilers run went for more than seven yards that entire day. Houston, remember, was still a few years away from drafting Earl Campbell, and the running backs they would use this afternoon were going nowhere fast. The nose tackle, Manny Fernandez, was asked why and how the team executed the coach's game plan so well. Well, basically, they demanded it. (laughs) Uh, We went over plays in the film room. When we review a game or... We were scouting the, the upcoming team we were going to play. Uh, we would go over every single play several times. Uh, and Bill would basically question just about every player on the defense as to what their assignment would be on this situation, what would it be on this situation. And we went through those meetings hours every day. Hard work pays off, and this defense, the forerunner of a modern-day 3-4, asked a lot 
of Manny Fernandez, a Northern Californian with a droopy handlebar mustache and developing affinity for wrestling alligators. Did he like this setup that he was in? Being the nose tackle in the 53 defense is the kiss of death. Um, there is, I mean, you're, you're, you're a target for any one of three offensive linemen and a possible running back filling. Um, you can get hit from several different directions. Uh, it's no fun. I didn't like it. I really didn't. I would have much rather played a 4-3. But this was, it, it just uh, hampered my ability to rush the passer. And on a lot of uh, our defenses, it put me in what we call a two-gap, where I couldn't rush the passer until I was sure it wasn't a draw or screen. Hmm. So it hampered me, and I didn't really like the three-man line, to be honest with you. Well, whether or not he liked the defense, he was a huge part of the defense, a defense that would allow just 12 points a game all year. That's the year after having allowed less than 11 points a game all year so far in 72 the dolphins had outscored their opponents 54 to 23 but next up would be quite the test owner joe robbie's law offices in minneapolis are just five miles from metropolitan stadium home of the minnesota vikings and those vaunted purple people leaders so next week big time test and we'll recap what happened for you on our next episode but for now This is Josh Lewin reminding you once again the happy final from week two at the Orange Bowl in Miami. Dolphins 34, Houston Oilers 13.